Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Scholarly communication is an open and ongoing conversation about how communication does knowledge. The premise of the podcast is this. Communicating is not a transferring, as if knowledge might be vacuum-sealed and delivered totally conserved, brain-to-brain. No, the premise of the podcast is that research communication is a place in time where people meet to represent and recreate the things they claim to know. Communication is meaning, as knowledge is too. And meaning is not something we send to receive, it's something that we make. I am your host, Daniel Shea. I invite you to listen to authors of research, to editors at journals, to scholars whose work addresses written communication generally and specifically, and just how it is that the words of science are make known the real world. My guest today is Paris Avieriu editor-in-chief of the Journal of Systems and Software, together with David Shepard. Paris is full professor of software engineering at the University of Groningen, the Netherlands, where he leads the Software Engineering Research Group, which focuses on architecture modeling, knowledge, evolution, patterns, metrics, and technical debt. Paris champions the evidence-based paradigm in software engineering and works towards closing the gap between academia and industry. Since 2018, Paris has been editor-in-chief of the Journal of Systems and Software. JSS, Journal of Systems and Software, was established in 1979 and has since published impactful work in the areas of information systems, software, computer networks and communications, and computer science applications. So let's begin today's episode, Paris Avieu on scholarly communication. Hi, Paris. Welcome to the program. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. One very interesting thing for a researcher like yourself is the crossover between editing a journal and doing full-time professorship. So I think this is something that very many researchers, but certainly early career researchers, would be interested to know how you straddle these two very 
impactful and important um, roles in the area of research? Uh, do you mean, or do I find the time, or how do I combine the activities? Both. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, of course, working on the journal is more of a uh, sort of after nine to five activity. Uh, it's more of a hobby, if you like, but it's a hobby that I really enjoy doing because it's a really important job. Uh, ensuring that you know the journal has good quality in terms of the publications we are able to have in the journal, as well as setting a vision, um, defining the topics, uh, try to steer the community towards one direction or the other. These are really exciting things, and I'm really happy to be able to contribute and serve this wonderful community of uh, software engineering. Uh, but like most things that academics do, uh, they do not belong in the nine to five. Uh, many of us, you know, tend to work uh, longer hours, and that's usually where you find the time to uh, to work on the journal. Um, in terms of the actual tasks that you do as an editor in chief, I think uh, you know, usually you when you enter academia, you. Um, are more familiar with uh, uh, authoring papers and maybe reviewing. But doing editorial work is a bit like going behind the scenes and uh, sort of um, understanding the whole process of how editors are assigned manuscripts and how they assign reviewers and how they handle the whole uh, peer review process. So that's a really interesting um, environment to follow. And I am... I think every day I do this job, I'm getting new ideas and I'm at least as excited as the first day I, I took this job. That's wonderful to hear. And I'm sure also people submitting to JSS will be very interested to hear that. It, it's it's very much the norm in, in science throughout the different fields, not just in software that you know, people are doing this, as, as you so vividly put it, in their free time as a, as a hobby, which which will come as a surprise to people outside of academia, the sort of work that goes into this. Um, but for sure, there is this idea that, yes, you, you actually entirely believe in the journal that you're setting up, The as you so vividly put it again, yes, so setting this vision and steering the community in certain to directions. I, I think this is one of the strengths that a journal brings to scientific publishing, isn't it? It's 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 duration. It's, it's sustainment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, a journal like JSS has existed for about, uh, I don't know, what is it, uh, close to more than 40 years. And of course, there is a lot of legacy that we have um, uh, but we also need to look into the future and see how to improve, how to serve the community better. What can we do to be able to help the authors that publish papers, help the reviewers do their, their job better, help the editors in their paper selection? Um, so there's a lot of uh, exciting things that, that need to happen uh, behind the scenes to be able to make sure that the journal has a sustained quality over the years. I'd, I'd like to get a little bit behind the scenes. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I was very happy um, to have you on the program and always am to have uh, editors on the program. You actually described this quite well. You, you say when 
you know, you're an early career researcher, you start to understand what authoring is and you begin doing your first reviews. So these are things that are within the scope, but they're not things that belong to science education. You're, they're within the scope of your practice, your training. But you've added on this other level of the editorship, which again is then not part of, you know, a science, science education, let's say, but it's something that, you know, people as they advance in their careers may encounter and may have the opportunity, as you're very well describing it, to do. What would you say, like, would be if you took authoring, reviewing, and editing, what might be some of the lines that you'd draw between them, just in a very rough sort of sense? Well, I think authoring it and reviewing are very close, uh, because when you review a paper, you actually start thinking uh, how to improve it, what are the strong points and also what are the points for improvement. And by getting into this kind of mentality, so how to actually, what is wrong with the paper uh, and how to uh, make it better, uh, makes you also a better author because when you review other people, other people's work, uh, you start to understand uh, what makes a paper strong and what... Uh, would be good to improve and change in a subsequent version. So when you go ahead to write your own papers, you automatically start thinking about these things. Uh, so in fact, reviewing other people's work makes you a better uh, author yourself. Uh, but the, the job of the editor is a bit different than that because there you kind of... Uh, so sort of curate the whole peer re review process. You know, you take a manuscript and depending on the content and the topics, you have to select the right reviewers. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> uh, you need to solicit those reviews, get them back, interpret them and try to make a decision. And that is really something that you cannot learn any other way rather than by uh, doing it. You know, it's just... Uh, on-the-job training that makes you a better editor. <clears throat> and it's a responsibility that you must not take lightly because this is people's very hard work that you are um, handling. So you must be very careful to make sure that you are fair and just in your decisions and that you serve the authors, uh, you serve the community, and which is pretty much you know, the, the job description. That's really interesting, the way you put together authoring and reviewing in that sense. And, and, and that really solidifies this idea that, you know, the reviewers are there to help the paper, the authors are offering the reviewer something to consider. Altogether, the product becomes something that's better. There's a cooperation there. And what I find interesting is this, this is the thing I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear you unpack, if you might, this idea of the editor being someone who's interpreting that process. You know, getting back the reviews or the rebuttals and um, just sort of following along with the process that the paper is going through and, and making a judgment call. Um, is there anything that along those lines in a concrete sense, particularly maybe even with the review that comes um, an editor's way or, you know, the rebuttal to it that that is helping or perhaps standing in the way of good interpretation? Right. I think it's a lot of, uh, it's a context sensitive process that you're doing as an editor. So just to give you an example, um, let's say that you assign two reviewers to uh, review a paper and you know that one of them, for example, is an expert in 
uh, research methods, and the other one is an expert on the subject field. Let's say that this is uh, the requirement engineering. Um, so when they return the reviews to you, you need to interpret them as such. You need to say, okay, the reviewer who's an expert in research method is commenting a lot about how the study was designed and how the results are presented, while the subject matter expert, uh, who is a requirement engineering expert, is talking more about the problem that is being solved and the contribution, how novel that is and how it advances the state of the art. <clears throat> this means that you're interpreting both reviews depending on the reviewers that made them, and you need to base your decision on, on that. If a reviewer, let's say, is not an expert in a particular field, um, then if they are making comments about that particular field, uh, judging from their own experience, perhaps they're not, you know, uh, this is not the most heavyweight uh, comment that you should uh, put your attention on, but you should uh, take everything with a, with a grain of salt. This concept, uh, context uh, sensitivity with your example there is, is is very interesting. That 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 gives a clear picture of what you mean then when you're talking about interpretation. And and there you're you're clearly looking out to or looking down into the particular paper. That's perhaps a better way of putting it. Because what I'm imagining also is that you're turning around and looking out into the field or or into at least the contribution that the entire journal is making to the field. Because uh, you know as editor in chief, this is one of also the unique things that you're serving on uh, for for the journal itself which direction is it heading you know what what contribution over a number of papers is it making um, to the community so how 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 is that happening for an editor in chief to be looking in both of these directions solid review you know really understanding that the paper is getting through the way that it should but also where is the entire journal heading you know maybe a the contrast between single paper versus batch of papers view? Well, um, we as editor-in-chiefs usually uh, don't look at the individual papers. We look at the uh, work of the handling editors and how they are uh, doing their work. Uh, so we look at statistics from the submission system and we try to find out, for example, if there are particular papers that is taking a bit too long to a review and make a decision or those that are difficult to find reviewers and we try to help with this kind of problems uh, especially help the handling editors to overcome this kind of obstacles but we we look at the big picture as the editors in chief we don't really go into the details of the individual papers um, when it comes to the strategy of the journal we do collect an awful lot of data so we know, for example, uh, what topics are popular and what is up and coming, how is the distribution across the globe, where do most of the authors work. Um, we have a little bit of um, information about, uh, let's say, gender balance. Um, so we're able to see some of the statistics from the submissions that we get in terms of both uh, those going through peer review, but also those that eventually get accepted. And then we're able to make some corrective actions. So if we see, for example, that a topic is very popular, we're going to hire more editors uh, in that topic to make sure that we're able to review those papers and handle them as efficiently and effectively as possible. 
Okay, so that 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 helps a lot. So the entire structure of the journal, uh, and by structure I mean the you know the people working at the journal is really there to make sure that people can cover the jobs that they're meant to be doing. And you're and you're describing there very well the the editor in chief's position of of to be looking over what's happening everywhere so that you can see okay, well, where do we perhaps need more staff? Where do we need to be uh, perhaps making decisions in, in in favor of different parts of the world or different uh, gender uh, gendered authors of submitting and so on? Is, is that about that about the way that you describe what you're doing? That is a big part of it, um, but we we also constantly look for for ways to serve the community as best as we can. And for example, one of the things that we focus a lot on JSS is to put the spotlight on the author's work. So if you have uh, submitted and had a paper accepted at JSS, of course it shows up on a digital library, but what more can we do for those authors? How can we sort of publish, publicize uh, rather their work more through social media uh, or other online platforms? And we have experimented with a few of those just to make sure that um, the the hard work of the authors gets a little bit of a boost. We are able to, you know, put it online through different channels so that more and more target audiences can can get to know them. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. So this is one of those new ideas that you're having all the time, if you like. Yeah. So how is it that we can get the author's work that's you know been published with us and we really stand behind to be noticed, to be seen everywhere? Yeah, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Uh, it's also quite uh, variable over time because, for example, we, we used to be uh, a lot of we used to put a lot of focus on social media on platforms like tw- Twitter, um, but in the past uh, few months or so, Twitter is no longer being used as uh, you know the number one medium in academia, at least not in our field. I don't know about other fields. So, <clears throat> what can you do on top of that? What other uh, channels or platforms can you find? 
uh, now, for example, we are experimenting with Reddit. So Reddit is a really nice platform, especially if you want to reach out to um, non-academic uh, readers and uh, spread out the word about research results. Uh, and it seems to be showing uh, promising results, at least for the time being. And I think Reddit is going to be probably much bigger and much more popular in the research community in software engineering. So uh, this is one way that we think we can bring the work published at GSS to the attention of a much larger audience. So uh, beyond these these measures and these experiments, as you say, to really spread the word about about good work, and beyond also looking strategically maybe into the statistics and figuring out where GSS needs to be heading, to get back to this word of vision, as you were talking about towards the beginning, what are some of the things that you think JSS stands for? Where does it really position itself in the field of, of software? And, you know, when when you hear JSS, I mean, which you hear multiple times a day, probably, um, what, are, what are some of the things that are going through your head? As in, this is clearly the work that belongs here. I think probably the number one is impact, particularly how we are able to help change software engineering practice. This is not something that can be taken for granted in our community. Um, there's a lot of research out there that's a little bit out of touch with real software development. Um, and of course, there are uh, researchers that try to solve very interesting problems, but problems that are not necessarily um, <clears throat> right now felt in practice by by real software developers. Um, what we do at GSS, I think that's probably what makes the journal stand out, is that we pay a lot of attention on how to actually have impact with our publication. So how to take those research results and potentially transfer them into practice, into software development practice. Again, this is not uh, something that everybody takes by default or tries to practice, um, but we try to make this link between academia and industry as much as we can <clears throat> so that the, the gap that exists between uh, software uh, engineering research and practice can be bridged, at least to some extent, we cannot bridge it completely. And if you imagine... Uh... That's that's very helpful for um, understanding what it is that you know in the field of research or in practice or in industry what you want JSS to be doing. But if you imagine also JSS in its publishing sphere, in its publishing context, how do you sort of let's say look to its neighbors if it was you know inside of a network, the nodes that were closest to it, other conferences perhaps where conferences are very popular in computer science or other journals that would not necessarily be in competition. I mean, competition isn't really what's happening so much, I would say, in scientific publishing, but where you see important differences or important crossovers, let's say. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I also don't see the journals competing against each other. <clears throat> there is a few uh, really wonderful journals in our field, as well as great conferences. 
and I see them all as uh, channels for disseminating research results. I think the strong, uh, the strong all of these conferences and journals are the better they serve the entire community. So I would much rather see uh, all of these journals and conferences coming together to try to solve our problems collectively rather than compete against each other. Um, maybe just to make it a bit more concrete and give you an example, um, <clears throat> a few years ago, we teamed up with another journal, Empirical Software Engineering, <clears throat> in terms of the uh, open science um, tracks that we have. So we try to make sure that the papers that are publishing open science artifacts uh, get somehow a stamp of approval, uh, which in our case is a badge, um, and they are able to uh, have direct links to those artifacts from the papers that are officially published and get them acknowledged so that those artifacts, which are usually data sets and tools, can also be reused by other researchers. So we've done this together with uh, this journal and we joined forces. I think it was uh, really helpful because we were able to sort of put our brains together and come up with a solution that could work for the community as a whole. And I think it's made this open science initiative stronger. Um, so. I would like this kind of initiatives that are cross-journal or even cross-capture uh, uh, the whole community also for conferences and journals, uh, that they are a collective work from the whole community so that it also benefits the entire community. So that's collaboration in collaboration, really. I mean, that's uh, because, I mean, you're bringing together entire conferences or in this case, uh, empirical software engineering and, and, and JSS um, that's going to obviously be wonderful on the resources that become available. And, and, and as you say, with the artifacts and the open science uh, movement, that was a success. But I could imagine also on the coordination end, things could get sometimes challenging. Or you may, and, and, and feel free to, to, to share if this is at all true, you may also realize that at a different conference or at a at a different journal, there's a different culture in place, a different structure in place, a different way of communicating in place. Yeah, that's that's true. There are certainly some differences, uh, for example, between the fields uh, within software engineering. You know, if you compare, let's say, software testing with uh, software architecture or requirement engineering, you'll find some nuances in terms of the culture, but. I have to admit to the to a large extent we actually are quite homogeneous and it's better to look at the community as a whole and try to solve problems as a whole because it independently of which field within software engineering you work on we have some really grand challenges that we are all facing and it will take a collaboration as you mentioned to be able to find some you know, uh, workable solutions for those challenges. To bring us back to an earlier topic, the reviewing, there's a lot of interesting things to be said there. I, I know actually having speaking to your uh, colleague, uh, David Shepard, that, that you together have actually innovated in a way, the way that reviewing is done at JSS. Um, is that something that you could perhaps briefly describe how a review process goes through and 
who's involved and where the paper is heading and who's doing what with it. And, and, and perhaps also just briefly this sketch of what it is that you changed at JSS as the way the review, uh, the reviewers and the editors are, are structured. Uh, well, first, uh, let me begin by saying that uh, peer review is a very challenging uh, activity, and it's uh, it's a challenge that uh, the entire community is facing. It, for some submissions, it is simply really hard to find uh, reviewers that accept the invitation to do that. Uh, in some cases, for a manuscript, you need to invite, let's say, 10 reviewers so that you can two of them to accept and eventually hand in the review. And this is a challenge that we all share. It is common among all uh, software engineering journals. So what we did uh, with JSS was to broaden our editorial board um, in terms of both its uh, size, but also its scope. So that uh, by scope, I mean that we capture all of the fields within software engineering and we're able to handle all papers uh, independently of which of those fields they contribute. Um, so we did reach out to the community. We invited a lot of very bright colleagues to join the editorial board as well as our team of editors so that we have this good coverage of um, scope. We, uh, on top of that, uh, the editorial board of JSS is asked to do a lot of peer review as well, in addition to their uh, other roles, for example, in providing advice to the journal, they do need to provide peer review. So at least that solves to some extent the challenge of finding suitable reviewers uh, to, uh, to go through the submissions. And perhaps a third measure that we took was to uh, re to reward those uh, members. So the members of the editorial board, as well as the editors, they are doing a ton of work for us and really good, high quality work, both in terms of the reviews that they provide, but also in terms of handling papers. So every year we give out awards uh, for the best editors and the best members of the editorial board as well as the best reviewers to make sure that they get credit for all of the work that they they do for us and this uh, has provided an incentive for our colleagues to sort of contribute more to the journal uh, do more reviews higher quality reviews handle the papers more efficiently and more effectively um, if you look at the statistics of the journal there is an upward trend, for example, in terms of the time it takes for a submission to get to go through peer review and reach a decision. Um, so these numbers have improved uh, partially due to those me measures that I just mentioned. Well, that's very it's very heartening to hear because um, I speak to very many researchers and editors here, and they describe precisely the challenge that you're describing or, or originally faced and have been able to improve upon in peer review. You know, topics become more specialized, the number of people doing them become fewer, uh, or at least their time becomes tighter. Um, if they're doing things just like you, Boris, in the after nine to five time, 
which all <laughs> academics are doing, right? Where are they going to be doing their reviews, right? You know, I mean, <laughs> there is a certain logic to this. Um, and yet so much depends upon peer review. And if I ask a researcher, you know, sort of an open-ended question along the lines of, you know, what would help the research most at this moment, peer review comes up well over half of the time. Um, so you've certainly at JSS picked on a, you know, broad-scaled problem that, that very many researchers in software engineering and elsewhere are facing. We'd like to think so, but of course, uh, the problem is not 100% solved, right? <laughs> we still have submissions where uh, it's kind of hard to find um, reviewers to say yes, to accept the invitation. Uh, one of the things that we usually do is also make a plea to all of the authors that submit to JSS and tell them, look, you're submitting your work and you expect uh, peer reviewers to go through it and give you critical feedback. We do expect you to do the same for other people's submissions. It's only fair to reciprocate. And they would be ideally situated. I mean, very many of these authors being specialists themselves, for sure. I mean, somebody whose paper is you know hard to slot somewhere and find a reviewer for, well, if they'll turn around and review other people's work, that will certainly help. That's That's clearly going to be the logic there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Especially over time, things should even out. Can you give us, again, a little bit more detailed look uh, in the reviewing process, say with, in particular there, a paper where it's really kind of hard, a manuscript where it's really kind of hard to find somebody to take, or on the opposite end where you've got topics or certain types of paper where you, you, you don't really have that problem, where you're almost picking and choosing reviewers. Um, what, what seems to make out that difference? Is it... Is it the angle taken on a topic? Is it a batch of topics that are just harder or easier to find people for? Um, I don't. Yeah, I'm, I suppose that's why I'm asking. I don't know what it is. <laughs> no, that's a very good question. It's usually the latter. <clears throat> so some topics are simply quite uh, specialized, um, and they are a little bit off the beaten path, if you like. So for those, it's kind of hard to find uh, reviewers that specialize in those particular topics. So that's the number one reason when you have trouble finding reviewers. Uh, sometimes it's also a bit with, uh, depending on the how the paper is written. Um, so if you see that it's not very easy to read and understand, uh, uh, reviewers will have a quick peek at that and say, well, you know, this sounds like it's a bit cryptic and hard to understand, so I'm going to pass. You know, it's going to take me too much time to go through that. Uh, so that's also up to the authors to try to make their writing as simple as possible, uh, get their message across without too much uh, complicated language, um, and get to the point uh, to the extent that the their paper looks, let's say, reviewable, some a paper that uh, you it might even be a, a joy for someone to to review. A joy to review. That's that's definitely a goal that that authors should be shooting for. And in fact, I'd, I'd like to hear more about that because this is again a podcast that's aimed quite specifically at researchers and perhaps even more specifically at early career researchers. So the advice that comes 
from people in your standing or people who know a lot about the review process is, is going to be useful. Um, the aim here being simply to just ease things along, to make it so that good work gets out there quicker and easier. So for a paper to be reviewable, you've, you said that the, the writing can be a factor. And uh, my ears perk up at that because as my listeners will know, I, I help scientists write. What would be some of the things... Maybe let's start on the negative end. What would be some of the things in the writing that might really turn a reviewer off? They may see in the topic, ah, some crossover, expertise, things that they know about, but there's just a bit of a wall of a text in front of them. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, uh, a wall of a text. Um, <clears throat> I think the number one anti-pattern is complexity. We are doing science, and science can sometimes be very complicated in its own right. Um, and the work that we do in software engineering research can also be very complicated. People, you know, build these very complicated pipelines to extract data and then analyze them, um, and then present some really complicated results. So the if you fall into the trap of saying, "Okay, I've done so much great." complicated work, let me try to show this work in all its complexity, you lost the game. Uh, if it's too hard for the reviewers to, to figure out what you're doing, what's your motivation, what's the problem you're trying to solve, what's your contribution, they will be rather neg <clears throat> I'm sorry, negative towards the, the paper. <clears throat> so complexity is your enemy. I always advise my own PhD students to simplify as much as they can. Make the job of the reviewers easy. State what is your uh, problem as easy as you can. State your contribution also in a, in a way that is uh, sort of understandable even to someone that's outside your field because some reviewers might not be specialists in what you're working on. Make sure that your contribution uh, with respect to the state of the art is clear. It should be very explicit that the you know state of the art has reached until point X and you're taking this a step further than X. So complexity is your enemy. You really need to try to simplify as much as you can. This, this is the inherent challenge in writing science, um, that you have science or engineering. Both are exactly the same, I would say, in this respect, that you have very complex subject matter objects that are being studied or questions that are being asked. And yet the aim is just, as you say, to to decomplexify as you bring into text because the text is a use object there, right? People need to get to your point and know what they need to find and get the data and get the reason for why and, and get whatever it might be that that, that study was meant to be showing. So I think on the one hand, we can certainly sympathize with researchers and engineers when th th that doesn't come off right. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> the text doesn't actually simplify enough, let's say. Yeah. But then, then there's also an issue of convincing people of, as to what exactly it is, is that's meant when we say complex subject matter, but simple communication. Because there will be people who don't understand simple, but they understand simplistic. And- of course, there's a major difference there. You're not talking at all here about simplistic. You're talking about clarity. 
That's right. Um, I wish I could, you know, just give you one sentence that could uh, uh, resolve this. And, you know, you can just follow this guideline and suddenly your writing has become much simpler. But it, it is not, there's no, you know, silver bullet here. Um, that what I do with my own PhD students, and I think most of my colleagues do the same, is a lot of one-on-one -on -one iterative uh, review uh, of all of the work that they do, where you just mark one sentence and you say, what does that mean? What are you trying to say here? Or, you know, you mark a paragraph and you say, uh, can you make this simpler? Can you try to get your message across using, uh, I don't know, a more uh, a simpler sentence? So I don't know if there's uh, one simple guideline that people can use to simplify their writing. It's a lot of uh, customized advice from PhD supervisor to PhD student to kind of guide them slowly but surely towards a more simple way of writing. Um, what I would certainly advise people against is to use generative AI. So I see nowadays uh, some PhD students that go to ChatGPT and tell them, uh, sorry, prompt the, the ChatGPT uh, with a paragraph and ask the system to make that simpler. This usually doesn't work because the PG student doesn't actually learn something from that. They need to go through this process with their supervisor, uh, this sort of question and answer to, to kind of iteratively clarify and simplify the text. I'm glad to hear you say that because I, I've, I've heard some or read some things. Most people on this podcast will be rather cautious at at, at least when it comes to generative AI, but I'm glad to hear you say that about generative AI because, I mean, what's going on in scientific writing quite simply or scientific text is hard thinking. And I mean, I've spoken with very many people who work closely with generative AI and they say, AI can't think. <laughs> so, I mean, if we, if we get to that sort of impasse, then we have a problem. You know, you can't lean on generative AI too much because it's not going to produce your work for you. Exactly. I think it's even worse than that. Generative AI is a really bad teacher. If you're trying to improve your writing, um, the you know a system like ChatGPT can help you write things, but you're not going to learn much about why uh, your text has been refined uh, to a different version. What's the rationale? Why does that make it simpler? Why is the message clear in that sense? You do need this interaction. Uh, maybe I'm a little bit old-fashioned, but uh, having this relation between a PhD supervisor and PhD student is also uh, a process where the student learns a lot by getting this constant feedback on the work, but it's also a way for the um, the two parties to get to know each other better and establish a relationship where you sort of build on your strengths and you kind of reinforce each other as, uh, you know, PhD, uh, PhD supervisor also learns uh, from his or her uh, PhD students. Yeah, well, I mean, this brings us back to the point where you say, you know, there's no silver, silver bullet. And I think people take 
you know, ChatGPT, it seems like an obvious sort of silver bullet, but it's it's not. I mean, the process that you're describing is is you know normal collaborative process of research and engineering or in science where you know two people have to get together and continually re-review and feedback on the work that each of them have done, whether one is more senior or not. Um, that's actually, in, in some cases, very important. In other cases, actually not so important. Um, I, I think what makes it so difficult uh, is that it's not really about a sentence in the end. You know, That's what ChatGPT can actually fix for us in a way because yeah. of its statistical... Yeah. The mechanisms, you know, it's great at making what a linguist like myself would call a clause, the verb with a few words around it. But after that, it's, you know, it's out in free space. And if you leave it out in free space too long, it's going to start hallucinating anyway. So <laughs> these are very bad things. But but I mean, what, what really needs to happen, I would say, is it's not about a product. This is too product oriented. It's about the production itself or the producing even to emphasize more this activity. I mean, with this, I, I would say there's a direct proportion between the time passing, the amount that's been written or read on a topic, and the clarity that's achievable. Sometimes people can't write a clear, let's say, I don't know, paragraph or an even introduction section or something because they haven't been, they haven't pegged and picked and looked at the topic long enough in a way. Absolutely. And this, exactly this interaction between uh, the supervisor and the PG student is what makes the, the whole process fun, but also uh, much more constructive. Uh, there is a famous uh, quote in our community uh, on how to do PhD supervision, and that is to focus on the student, not the research. Because if you focus on the student, you might be able to produce a, a great researcher um, that's not always the case when you focus on the research, the work itself. Uh, I think as supervisors, we do have responsibility towards our students. We are training the next generation of uh, software engineering researchers, and we need to put the effort and the time to give them the feedback and the advice that they need so that they are able to also thrive in their own career. That's also wonderful to hear because, I mean, supervision is an excellent model. I mean... It's that apprenticeship model, you know, take a master, put them next to a journeyman or, you know, a novice and a novice or a journeyman who usually is quite specialized. I mean, as you say, PIs will often learn from their own um, PhD or postdocs because those people are just so deep inside or so capable in certain areas. Um, so, so all of that is, is certainly great, but you need to realize that that's what you're actually doing, as you're saying. You're supervising, right? There's a person across from you. And I would say the same is true of the communication. I mean, this is certainly part of what supervisors would will do is, uh, you know, help also produce the final product of the work, which, you know, is the written product. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very happy to be hearing that because I think that that is certainly drawing out the strengths of this uh, supervision model. Yes, exactly. And as I said, it's also much more fun to do that. Uh, I think one of the reasons many of us go into academia is because we enjoy this collaborative sort of problem solving and answering hard questions. These are things that you cannot uh, easily do by yourself. Uh, I think when you have a team of PG students and postdocs, it also becomes a much more 
social activity and therefore also more fun. To circle us back one last time, just for a, a, f- a few more minutes here towards the end of the interview on um, the journal and how an editor works there, and in particular now to move over to also the product of you know manuscripts and what's being um, said in these and, 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 and what makes one more successful than another. I, I think your point about the complex work but the simple text is a very useful takeaway because sometimes the advice can be far too specific and it doesn't apply to every project. But when somebody is, hears that, well, I have very complex subject matter here and I need to make it simple, that's that's already quite helpful. I, I think it could also be helpful, though, to look, okay, well, a paper is a quite complex you know, sort of text or text type in itself. It's got all these different parts to it. You know, you, you go from the abstract into the evaluation. You have your you know, your references and then you've got your related work. So there's different functions being performed in different places. And I would imagine when you are telling listeners and telling me that, hey, let's look for something simple, you're thinking about certain of these sections, but not others. Well, so for instance, in the framework, we won't want to be leaving out any details. We'll want to be certainly perhaps getting quite hairy, <laughs> getting getting quite complex at certain moments. Um, but in other places, you know, the abstract would be a perfect example, I'd imagine. We, we want that ultra high level clarity. Yeah, um, I think that's a good point. Of course, the abstract acts as the kind of uh, public relations uh, highlight for the paper. So it should be polished almost to perfection. It should not have any redundancy or unnecessary complexity. Uh, in addition to the abstract, I always uh, put a lot of emphasis on the introduction because this is where you actually introduce the reader and particularly the reviewer uh, to your work. So that has to be crystal clear um, how you set the context, how you introduce the problem, how you motivate what, how the way you're going to solve the problem and eventually how you argue um, how your solution advances the state of the art. So the introduction is also something that you must pay a lot of uh, attention to make sure that it's crystal clear, very simple, and that the message gets across. When you go to other sections, for example, the study design, um, that does go into a lot of technical details, and there's not too much you can do there to simplify other than following um, standardized methods for reporting the study design. For example, there is now empirical standards published by ACM that allow uh, both reviewers and authors to structure the way they are um, designing their studies. Uh, also, when it comes to the results, there you yeah, you need to show some of this complexity. Of course, you can also, you know, choose certain plots instead of others that are a bit simpler. And at every single sentence in your uh, paper, you can always ask yourself, can I say this in a simpler way? Can I use fewer words? Uh, a lot of my colleagues joke about the fact that their job is mostly about shortening text written by PhD students. Uh, and this is uh, this is to a large extent true. We produce a lot of text, but to make it more clear and more concise, 
we need to reduce some of it and make sure that whatever is left there still gets the message across, but of course, uh, in a more clear way. And I think some of that, and this, this again shows generative AI's limitations, some of that is really being clear on the purpose as to why you're saying something. So to take your last example there of results, you know, when you're deep in the results, it can be as a PhD or an early career researcher quite easy to just, you know, run with it, <laughs> you know, just start plotting things, describing things, telling things. But if you're somebody who, and I'll see this sometimes in, in, in manuscripts that I'll get, I'll notice in around paragraph four or five that we're starting to get to the real point of why we're finding out this set of results, what it's being compared to, which hypothesis it relates to. And and that means most of what came before that was just sort of warm-up exercise in a sense, <laughs> or was just exploring stuff just because. And um, that level of purpose, understanding why and what I need to do to fulfill that why, you know, that's clearly well beyond the generative AI's capabilities. And it's something that, you know, takes a lot of, you know, engagement with your own subject matter. That's very true. Uh, also, generative AI tends to write things that uh, sound nice in an academic uh, way, uh, but they're also uh, not particularly insightful, uh, to say the least. Uh, so there's a lot of text that generative AI produces that is, in fact, polluting your document, polluting your text. Um, and so I would be very reluctant to incorporate automatically generated text just because it reads nice. Uh, it usually does not really add a lot of value to the paper. You really need to think about this yourself, write it yourself, and be very critical does this come across uh, well? Do I say the message? Can I shorten this? Can I make it simpler? Uh, so you need to constantly reflect on what you've written and try to improve it so that it becomes as uh, simplified and clear and concise and coherent as possible. You talked about, for instance, the ACM's uh, standardization there of uh, study designs there's also a trend in different areas of computer science that you know the paper will be organized in very many different ways. Um, of course, that's sometimes field dependent, whether or not there's experiments going on or not. So, of course, that's going to affect what gets in the paper. But even you know, in a field like I'm thinking maybe machine learning, which is not you know exactly software engineering, but sometimes even software engineering papers, you see a bit of variation into where things are put in the paper. Um, what are your sentiments as to paper organization and subject and, and excuse me set section headings and what needs to go where? Yeah, this uh, again uh, plays to the question: How can you make the job of the reviewers as easy as possible? If you have structured your paper in a way that is a bit unorthodox, uh, rather different than what most papers in the same field are structured reviewers are going to start scratching their head and saying, why is this in this section? Why are threats to validity in the conclusion section? Why are the research question only stated together with the results? So all of these things start to look strange to a reviewer. I think the more standardized uh, way you write, standardized uh, as in conforming, let's say, to what your field uh, looks like, 
the traditional the the, you, the typical paper in your field looks like uh, the more uh, the easier the job of the reader to recognize the different parts of the paper and then they stop asking these questions and they focus on the content uh, so that makes it more likely for them to have a positive uh, opinion about your paper instead of getting annoyed about why things are placed in sections that they don't belong. To close out, Paris, I always like to ask my guests, especially when they're researchers like yourself or editors, which you also are, uh, just basically what is something that might change now in research practice or in education practice that could help the research outputs? Um, and this is really as broad or as specific as you'd like. We've actually covered a lot of things. I mean, the peer review has been a major topic in our conversation today. Um, so maybe if something else occurred to you, particularly from your seat in the editorship of, uh, of uh, systems and software, but anywhere, even also your experience as a PI yourself, uh, what would be one big or small thing that you think, if we changed it, this would really help the research along? Um, can I mention two things? Because for me, they're equally important. Is that okay? That that, that would be even better. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, at least in software engineering, uh, certainly we need to look at the impact of our research. We need to solve the problem that software practitioners actually face. <clears throat> if we do focus on this kind of problems instead of uh, research questions that we came up with uh, because we find interesting, I think our publications are going to be much more impactful and much more likely to have to make a difference in the real world. So that's one thing. The second thing for me is open science. Uh, we started putting our open science artifacts online uh, in repositories. Um, I'm referring to, for example, data sets or and tools uh, in the past few years. And we're still not great at that, but we are getting better. I think if we you know, are able to share those data sets that can be reused by other researchers instead of keeping them for ourselves. Making our tools online uh, more usable, provide instructions on how to install them and how to use them so that they can also be reused by other researchers in the same field. It would help a lot to um, economize on resources because it's it takes a lot of effort to do data collection and a lot of effort to build those tools. So why not share them as best as we can and allow the rest of the community to reuse them so that we can sort of collectively advance the state of the art? Well, thank you very much of that for the two things. I love that. And um, that is Padre Savayiro. He is Editor-in-Chief at Systems and Software. And thanks to you too, my listeners. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high-fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.